Anything stupid to say before we start? <laughs> Not that I can think of. Nothing dumb, nothing dumb, nothing dumb. Hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, episode 38. In this episode, we are talking about Viet Tan's... Oh, fuck. Hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, episode 38. In this episode, we are talking about The Sympathizer by Viet Tan Nguyen. I am Ryan, and with me is my good buddy, fellow host, Jacob. Yes, hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, our little book cult, book club, book something or other, episode 38. A very important episode. A new a new stepping stone of episodes, I think, uh, for us going forward. And oh. of course, I'm talking about the new digs. Oh, um, yeah. It's clearly, you know, you can clearly hear the, <laughs> ooh, just how much better we feel kind of in our, uh, in our tone, but... Uh, you you moved recently. Yeah. Uh, for those who've been listening for a while, we've been basically recording in uh, your office, your front room in your house, and uh, you and your wife have made a pretty big change lately. You guys moved downtown. Yeah. We uh getting prepared for maybe potentially moving abroad at some point in the next few years, decided to sell the house early and uh, get in an apartment and uh, make that easier. And so, yeah, we find ourselves... With a, a view of North Dallas. Yeah, 14th, 14th floor. We got quite a little view here. It feels very official. I feel like the podcast now carries a little extra little extra weight with it. We're not just yeah. a couple of guys in a in a north suburb front room, you know, looking across the street at Linda and Gary, sort of tending to the weeds. Now we've kind of are looking down on all the uh all the majesty that is northish Dallas. Yeah. So. SMU, you can see SMU uh out that way. Yeah. A little bit. I think uh, White Rock Lakes over yonder, although I can't see that either. So not really yeah. sure what's what's out this window. But uh, but yeah, no, this is going to be a fun episode. Yeah. And uh, it'll be a traditional episode, obviously. We're going to tell you a little bit about the author. I'm going to give you a brief summary, and then we're just going to get into the book. Uh, I'm not sure if we have explicit questions, but we definitely have some things that we want to talk about for this yeah. time. And then we'll chew that over. And of course, we'll come to our patented three-tier Four, if we're holding it in a communist re-education camp. Five, if we're going to secretly shoot it in the face because we believe or we want to make someone else believe that it's a it's a spy. But yeah, our patented rating system. That's a little grim. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, then we'll tell you about uh, what's coming up on future episodes. And I'm excited about the some of the next ones we got coming up. Yeah, we actually have like multiple books. We have two books to, picked to already for the that's, next two. So that's that's exciting in and of itself, our preparedness. That is going to be wild. So this is the part where I tell you that if you haven't read this book, you should go pick it up and then listen to the podcast uh, because it's weird to listen to podcasts about books you haven't read yeah. unless you're cheating and you want to take our hot book opinions to your college class and recycle them as your own. Terrible uh, idea. Terrible idea. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't take my opinion to my own college class, yeah. but here we are. Uh, so let's let's talk about uh, Dr. Wynn. Uh, Dr. Wynn, medicine woman, man? No, not It's like not Dr. Medicine. Quinn. I, come on. That's, the, <laughs> that's an ultimate 90s reference. It, it is. Dr. Wynn. All right. So uh, he, was, he was born in uh, Vietnam in 1971. Um, his parents are actually refugees uh, from North Vietnam. And after Saigon fell, um, they were refugees uh, in Pennsylvania. Um, they were in, uh, I think it was Fort Indian Town Gap. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, probably. That's That sounds like a wild name. Anyway, um, eventually they made their way down to San Jose, California um, and opened a uh, Vietnamese grocery store. Um, he eventually attended uh, UC Berkeley, uh, got a uh, BA in uh, English and uh, Ethnic Studies, and then ended up getting his, his PhD from there. He's currently a professor at USC. Uh, he's a critic at large. Uh, for the LA Times, um, and uh, he's the editor of a blog um, for Diasporic Vietnam Artist Network. Uh, I had to look that word up, but it's, okay. it's sort of like just means displaced. Sure. Uh, often used, as the, uh, the little echo device told me earlier, uh, in relation to Jews in Nazi Germany. So, uh, But I learned a new word. There uh, you go. 
So uh, The Sympathizer was actually his debut novel in 2015. Uh, he's written uh, some nonfiction um, and, uh, and some other, other uh, stories as well, short stories. Uh, but The Sympathizer, for, for a debut novel, uh, won a bunch of awards. Uh, he got the uh, Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction, uh, the Asian Pacific Award for Literature. He was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award. And of course, the highest honor is the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for, for Fiction. Uh, he wrote uh, sort of a companion book to this, which came out, I think, in 2016, uh, called Nothing Ever Dies, Vietnam and the Memory of War. Uh, it was It's a nonfiction um, mm-hmm. book about, obviously, the, the same subject matter. It was a finalist for the uh, 2016 National Book Award. And then uh, he wrote a collection of stories called The Refugees, uh, which I actually might pick up. It, it sounds interesting. I was listening to some of his interviews, and he was talking about growing up in that uh, that refugee kind of community and mm-hmm. all of these you know different stories that that he would hear, which you know obviously heavily influenced this book and and sounds like a lot of his other work. So, um, super interesting guy. The one thing you know I I will say about him um, is that. Anytime you have somebody that is as like engrossed in a subject like uh, like he is and has been as successful as he's been in his writing career, yeah, I kind of expected him to be stuffy in interviews, but uh, he was actually quite a lovely guy and uh, was was very personable, very down to earth, and and very clearly had a mission for like how his work uh, kind of can help these communities or more importantly, I think the conversation around some of these situations. Sure. Interesting guy. All right. You owe us a book summary. Oh man. A quick and dirty summary. Might I add the sympathizers, a story about our unnamed uh, narrator who is in fact a uh, sympathizer for the South Korean uh, refugees, or South Korean, South Vietnamese (laughs) uh, refugees, despite being uh, in cahoots kind of with the North Korean, North Korean, I keep saying Korean, North Vietnamese, um, Communist Party and sort of his exploits and and balancing those two uh, different aspects of his life, along with just sort of the the duality of his of his nature and his ethnicity and just sort of his experience within American culture and outside of it as well. So. All right, so where do you want to jump in on uh, on this? Let's. I I mean I think we need to start just with. I guess kind of the overarching like the Vietnam War okay. as it as it is sort of as as it exists in American consciousness because I feel like we we're we're a generation sort of removed from that very present sort yeah. of idea yep. of Vietnam but you know we kind of I feel get get a taste for you know what Vietnam is but I think so much of it is shaped obviously through through movies and through like popular culture and things like that that mm-hmm. You get kind of this weird, distorted, like American-centric version of it, which obviously is addressed in the book. So, yeah. prior to this, I, I I don't know what is your what is your level of I guess understanding or just sort of level of tertiary knowledge about Vietnam um, prior to prior to reading this. Um. So I I guess it would probably just be mostly formed by like pop culture and you know whatever history classes that I took that I can't remember even really covering the the war but yeah basically was you know a proxy well I wouldn't say a pro well I guess kind of was a proxy war in some way of Mm -hmm. us against communism right and and an extension of the cold war and uh and all of that like we have this idea as Americans that communism is bad uh, and uh, and we were directly trying to save uh, Vietnam from all of the communist influence from the north. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously well aware of the, uh, you know, dissension at home during that period um, as far as, uh, you know, a lot of people not wanting to be involved in uh, in that conflict and thinking that it was a uh, ridiculous waste of life. Um, obviously, you have the draft issues, um, all of those kind of things. But um, yeah, I can honestly say that I, up until I read this book, never really thought much about uh, the actual people of Vietnam yeah. and 
that's yeah, it's kind of kind of embarrassing to say, actually. Well, sure, yeah, and I think I mean the book addresses it obviously, kind of like spot on with the sort of American centrist idea of Vietnam that. You know, when they were talking about making the movie and it's hilarious when all the background of making this movie is made. And I've seen my share, you know, I've seen basically, you know, I've seen Full Metal Jacket. I've seen Platoon. Yeah. Um, I've seen quite a few Vietnam movies and it's the the closeness with which this sort of like cuts into the idea that it's, you know, the Vietn- the Vietnamese people are the sort of backdrop to their own story. Yeah. And yep. you kind of have this sort of like American centrist, like we're the good guys even though there's kind of that like gray area, but we're there to like help the good Vietnamese versus the bad Vietnamese. And, you know, um, just, I don't know, just this idea that it's, it was this sort of fight against communism when the reality of it is, it seems is that it was kind of, you know, post post world war two and post Korea, you know, the U S had been trying to kind of like expand its influence in like the Pacific Rim and Southeast Asian countries to kind of, because you had, you know, Russia and China that were those big sort of predominant forces in the area that were that were communist nations. And so you just have this this idea of kind of the US trying to like exert its influence in in these in these areas that kind of disrupt uh disrupt and and sort of create a lot of turmoil for for the people that sort of inhabit these areas and yep. you know, we don't see it as that. You know, we kind of we kind of get the picture of, well, communists are universally, they were universally bad. They were the bad guys. And we were trying to help, you know, the, the, the good, the good guys, the, the non-communists against sort of against this, this, this regime. And, and it's, it's, it, you know, it plays a lot of parallels and we can get to this later with kind of that sort of more recent, uh, developments that we've seen with influence within kind of Central Asia and the Middle East with kind of the U S and, and, you know, democracy building and things like that, where yeah. you kind of see a lot of parallels, both in sort of the way that those events are viewed and yep. just yep. sort of the the sort of separation now that it leaves with kind of refugees that are left to sort of pick up the pieces and are simply sort of backdrops into their own, in their own lives and conflicts. But yeah, I mean, like going into this book, much like you, I, you know, I feel a little bit, uh, I felt like kind of unprepared you know i felt like i was i'd known sort of a tertiary enough knowledge about vietnam at large but so much of it is sort of that the kind of like americanized soldier experience and right, really right. just sort of is is blind to the the millions of people that suffered and died and the thousands and hundreds of thousands that were displaced and kind of like permanently displaced from that so so this was this was good in that sense of kind of like allowing, you know, ourselves and not to, not to be the people that are like, you know, like, Oh, you know, this book was written. And I think I, you know, I watched a few interviews with him as well. It's like, this book isn't written, you know, about the sort of minority experience to show the majority sort of, this is what happened. I mean, I I think it's more so he said this book was written just because, you know, it was kind of like a personal story and it's close to him. And the idea that this was sort of this, uh, foray into that for for our sake is is a little bit misguided but in some ways it does kind of accomplish that goal which yeah. is which yeah. is to say here's here's kind of these these experiences of the the refugee vietnamese community the, of kind of this sort of duality of race and race relations within america in that time and things that are just kind of pervade beyond that and even sort of the relations within vietnam itself so i we're kind of i'm no i way off no i I think i think it's it's a discussion i actually kind of want to stay on for a minute because i i think it's interesting and i I think it's it's very important to him if you listen to those interviews that that is you know a conversation that that arises out of this book and the the thing that I that I find very interesting, uh, and the narrator mentions it at some point, um, I think toward the end, where he says that you know um, something to the effect of you know Vietnam is is or this is the only instance in which the losers you know get to rewrite the history they write of, the story of, yeah. of what happened, and I mean isn't that such a a powerful um, message for you know how we leverage things, you know, like film. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously American film is pervasive throughout the world. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, I mean, that is, that is a far reaching influence. And, you know, I, I think the thing that makes 
that message or sort of uh, not rewriting, but um, sort of highlighting of uh, that perspective of the war is that in in movies like Full Metal Jacket and mm-hmm. uh, Platoon, uh, Forrest now. Gump, yeah, Apocalypse <laughs> Now. For, I forgot about Forrest Gump. That's uh, Good Morning Vietnam. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a great movie. I hadn't thought about that one in years. But um, Born on the Fourth of July. Yeah, but all of those things humanize only one aspect of the war, right? Yeah. And through that, it's it's a very powerful thing, right? Just just like this book was able to, it sounds like shift both of our perspectives um, pretty seriously about what we don't know and don't hear yeah. um, when it comes to these conflicts or uh, intentions politically. Um, that that aspect of being able to create characters and stories that, you know, we can relate to and thereby, you know, experience something emotionally, not just intellectually, is is a very powerful, you know, propaganda in and, in and of itself. Yeah. And they're like... If after like reading this, do you feel a little bit like dirty for liking some of those movies, you know, uh, up to this point for their sort of very skewed perspective? Very just like rah, rah. Yeah. I mean, even even though, you know, within some you kind of get this conflict of, again, this gray area of, uh, you know, the it's not just all universally like the U S is the good guy across the board and they do only good things, you know? Um, I mean, there, there are plenty of instances with the movies too, you know, uh, where it's just, they're seen doing awful things, but sure. It's still good, bad or otherwise. It's still, it's, it's portrayed as their conflict and their sort of moral, uh, ambiguity and their sort of decisions and, and and what goes on in their lives. And yeah, Yeah. it's just, you know, you have all these people that are just put as a, they're just set pieces. They're just a backdrop for the actions of these guys. And so, yeah, it does feel you do kind of look at that and you go, yeah, you know, that is sort of a, that is really disingenuous to, to like enjoy or to promote that or to sort of elevate that as like storytelling. Yeah. Um, when I think certainly you could be, you could be telling compelling stories and you could be doing things that would make for, for good. So, I mean, this again, this is an example of that where you could take something that is a completely different perspective of this conflict, a completely different perspective of sort of a community displaced and dealing with the ramifications of it, mm-hmm. then you would see in other sort of things that you associate with Vietnam. So yeah, a little bit, you do feel a little bit sort of, uh, not dirty, but just kind of, it's like, it's sad that the glorification of sort of American, involvement in this and sort of American centrist stories. We were soldiers. That was no, sorry. That was Korea. That, that was Korea. Yeah. I'm trying to think of other war movies from Vietnam. I think that pretty much exhausted. That's, my, that's, that's my basically list. the, Oh, deer hunter is kind of another, that's never, more like, never saw that's that more one. like after though. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, there was, you know, the eighties and, and nineties were just flush with them just yeah. because it's kind of one of those, I don't know, Vietnam holds this place still to this day. It just holds this place in kind of America's sort of war consciousness. Cause it was really the first time where it was not like clearly obvious what it is we were doing or why it is that we were involved. You know, yeah. everything up until that point, it's like, all right, civil war, we're holding everything together, revolutionary, you know, going back World War One and Two, you know, it was kind of very apparent that what we were doing was just and what we were kind of supporting was 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 good and then along comes vietnam and it's very confusing it's very perplexing it's yep. you know it's it's very politically motivated it's very sort of like not necessarily there's it's it's more like strategic element than actual sort of like protection of people or or trying right, to fight right. against some injustice when you know you kind of have this inequality on both sides and you know, you fight, you seemingly, it's like, you know, we want to fight to, to help the Vietnamese people, but then you have kind of displaced refugees that come to America and then they're treated, you know, basically as, as, you know, lower than second class citizens in a lot of ways. And it's that sort of duality and dichotomy that exists sort of in America's, you know, past and obviously still somewhat in the present too. And 
yeah, it's it's it is nice at least, and not to say like, oh, it's nice to kind of like put my guilt aside because I kind of got to read this. <laughs> not that I, you know, I, again, I wasn't alive in Vietnam. I don't, uh, you know, everything that I know is very tertiary, but it is nice to to take a moment and and get you know those perspectives that are otherwise not necessarily unavailable, but just. You know, I never sought out until this point. Like, yeah. you know, Vietnam was interesting enough. I hell, I when I was in college, I took a military history class, and we had a really big um, section about sort of post Tet Offensive and um, everything that was involved in that. I remember far less than I probably should. Um, granted, how interesting <laughs> that class was, but you know, again, everything has just always been seen through the eyes of of American military experience and intervention, and yeah, yeah, and. I think the other thing that that complicates it too, um, and I, I wonder sometimes if this is like a uniquely American thing, but like we are taught and expected to be like patriotic about you know our our military, sure. And uh, I think that phenomenon is is also difficult, right? Because I know, especially during Vietnam, there was a lot of conflict, you know, about you know returning vets and and uh, lack of patriotism. Uh, and even even now, you know, you still get some of that like um, argument that like you need to be patriotic. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a lot of that comes up in times of conflict or war uh, and, and that sort of thing. Right. Sure. Like we we hold our our veterans and and uh, our military in in high regard and in a lot of ways, you know, rightly so. But you know, at the same time, we are involved in, you know, difficult conflicts with very serious and complicated, you know, um, consequences. And we often deflect um, some of the humanitarian crisis that goes on in in those conflicts with the, well, you need to be patriotic kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. And that's vastly over, oversimplifying, you know, the complexity of that. But that's that's the way it feels as as an American sometimes. But yeah, so the 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 refugee thing, um, the refugee part is is kind of interesting because, um, you know, we have actively this last you know four years uh, really pushed back against um, you know taking in refugees from uh, some of the Middle East countries, sure, that, from displaced from yeah Syria, Iraq. Yeah. I mean, there's there's all that debate. Um, going on about uh you know we we promised the uh like informants and translators and stuff in iraq that you know they they could be brought over here along with you know their families for helping us because they would literally be murdered um, sure you know for for that and now you know there's stories that we're not honoring some of those obligations for various reasons um and so it's it's a it's a complicated subject right uh seen in the news endlessly for years now, all the Syrian refugees, you know, fleeing to the EU. It's a huge point of contention uh, in Germany um, with how many refugees that they've they've taken in. I mean, there is serious, um, you know, discord in that country about the changing, you know, uh, just climate of, you know, some of their cities um, and how to deal with uh, economically and socially, you know, this influx of, of people sure. who don't, sort of, don't have jobs, yeah, and, this, you know, this, have a different culture. And, yeah, and this all. combination of just two, not that they're like diametrically opposed cultures, but so no, different. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just the matter of like, okay, now when you have such a large refugee population, like how, what are you doing to ensure that they have like the skills necessary to sort of assimilate and actually like kind of, you know, create this, this intermixing because the the worst thing that can happen is whenever you kind of have this sort of like, well, you know, we'll just put everyone in their own communities and they can do their own thing. And then you create this more sort of isolationist approach and that, cause that just creates schisms that creates this sort of, it, it amplifies this kind of like separation of peoples within a country. Cause you go, well, they're not like us. They're over there. They're doing their own thing and right. they're very insulated and we're very insulated. And then, you know, you kind of now have this sort of growing, uh, friction from that. And yeah, I mean, that's, that in and of itself is a whole other can of worms to open. And, yeah. you know, I know he was, you know, just imagining some of the stuff, the, the author himself, he was talking about his own kind of experience. I remember in one of the interviews where it was, he was at the fort and the way it worked was in order to get out of these sort of refugee camps, you had to be sponsored by, 
Uh, he had to be sponsored by American families. And so his family unit of four, his mom, dad, and his sibling and him, they were, they ended up having to be sponsored by three different families. So he was like yeah. separated from his family to live with another American family while his mom and dad had another family. And then his sibling had another family. And it's just, you know, that being the sort of, you know, welcome to America. This is kind of the, the policies at place to yeah. sort of ensure, I guess, this, whether it's, you know, whether whatever, whatever reasoning behind a policy like that, whether it's, we want to make sure, you know, there's assimilation or we want to make sure that, right. that people are, you know, not sort of left out on their own. It's, you create all of this, all of this chaos amongst like family units. And, you know, we kind of see it a little bit now sort of with, with, uh, you know, immigration and, and refugees at our Southern border. And it's, it's, yeah, it's tough because I feel like, you know, the refugee experience is kind of the American experience in a Absolutely. lot of ways. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the opportunity to try to go somewhere, even if it's, you know, whatever, you know, whatever reason or whatever thing that displaces you, the, the you know, the, the promise of America is the opportunity to go somewhere and to have opportunity to, to make the best of whatever situation it is for yourself, yeah. for your yep. children, for generations to follow. And, I think it's, you know, it's really important because you kind of have that idea at odds with the, you know, sort of we're, you know, we're very, we're very proud of who we are and, yeah. and of the things that we've established and we don't want that to change. And the idea that you can have both sort of this constant churning and influx of, of peoples that come from different backgrounds and different cultures and, and have different ideas and sort of assimilating that and sort of creating a climate within your country that will that will allow everyone to, to, to work and allow everyone to kind of like succeed on a level. It's very much at odds with the idea that it's like the way that we do things is the way that we do things. And like, you know, you have to essentially, you know, you, you've got to just switch. You have to hit, you have to flip a switch and you have to do all this or it's not. So yeah, I don't know. I kind of got a little bit off there, but no, I, I, you know, I, th- I think, I think it's, it's really interesting, like to think about what responsibility do we have to, like, assimilate people to our culture versus, you know, letting them um, or letting us assimilate to theirs, right? Sure. And like when when I travel, um, there there are certain places that feel, you know, very. Um, set in their cultural identity. Yeah. Um, and I never get that impression like from America as a whole, right? Like we, we get li- little like microcosms of, you know, certain, certain culture in States or, or cities. Um, a lot of times based around, you know, like food, um, and, uh, you know, just, just things like that, whether it's, you know, an agricultural state or, you know, whatever you get, you get some of these sort of very generic kind of traditions, if you will. Yeah. Um, but I feel like outside of, you know, just sort of the American dream, uh, quote unquote, I don't really feel like there is much of like a cultural identity as, as Americans. So like me personally, when we get into these conversations about, you know, assimilation and, uh, and all of that, like it just it beguiles me sometimes that that's even a thing because I, I don't feel like we have a well-defined, you know, thing that we expect people to be right. Like I just expect people to behave, pay taxes if they have a job like I do and like yeah. not not fuck shit up generally. Right. Like, sure. You know, if, if somebody wants to to go build whatever their religion is structure across the the street from me. Like, I don't care. What is that? What does that matter? You know, if, uh, they have a Vietnamese grocery store pop up across the street. Cool. I guarantee that I'm going to go over there at some point and buy something. Like, I, I just don't understand, um, sometimes the difficulty in that, but I think part of it does go back into the sort of tribal nature of people as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, talked about it in, in this book and we see it, you know, like uh, San Francisco is a great example. We have Chinatown, right? There is a specific section that is like, that is very like Asian cultural centric. Right. Um, and, you know, we do tend to set up these areas like Irving is, uh, you know, heavily Indian culture. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you get and these, Pakistani and well, yeah, I, Overgeneralized, you're right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know you, you do get these sort of pockets where people um, congregate, you know, yeah. based on you know what they're comfortable with. But 
to me, that's that's more of just getting a foothold in a in a place with using the things that you're familiar with, right? Whether that's food or people uh, or you know holidays, tradition, religion, whatever it is, and those things are okay as long as you know we're respectful of of those things, and yeah. you know, uh, expecting somebody to come shed their religion uh, to be you know American that's that's crazy to expect somebody from you know Germany to immigrate to the US and to just become American I mean that's that's a ridiculous expectation you know mm. I'm not going to go uh you know move to India and and lose my americanness whatever that is other mm-hmm. than maybe my mouth uh but <sighs> that's a whole nother whole nother topic for another day yeah um so let, we we've gone very meta. Let's yeah, let's, let's, let's let's get let's into the book. Hone in on the book some. I want to talk about the uh, the narrator. Okay, because I feel like you know throughout the book, because we're so close and we're in his thoughts, and we get kind of that right off the bat. We we are kind of like introduced to to his his thought process to sort of the duality of his nature. Yep. To how he his his aspect or his you know his his greatest aspect or his curse is that he can see both sides of everything and and sympathize with that. That's yep. the you know the title of the book anyway. It is. And that again that pours into his ethnicity being of kind of Eurasian descent and seeing uh, the sort of like separate nature of that. We get this very kind of up close and personal view of him and. And we as readers, I, I feel, are led to be very like sympathetic for him. But when you look at sort of the actions of his character, he really is sort of a, a, a not good, per- an awful person. Um, sure, yeah. And that in and of itself, too, I think sort of plays into this idea of that kind of like duality where you can do such sort of awful things, but still reading the book, you, you sympathize with this character, you feel for him, and you don't necessarily sort of despise him for the things that he does for the people that I guess he manipulates. You know, he kills people in the book yeah, to, yeah. to cover his own hide. You know, he's a frequent womanizer. You know, he he does all of these things that are not necessarily like uh, tokens of someone you should be sympathetic towards as a, as a protagonist. But yet I find myself, you know, kind of feeling for him despite all of this. And, and I think that that, first of all, is a sign of a good storyteller. And I think that that sort yeah. of is sort of, pervades throughout the entire book in in that we get such a close view of this person and we get such a dissection of their thoughts and their feelings um that despite the fact that they are that their actions are are terrible yep. in a lot of ways we we can't help but kind of like feel for them and feel for their their struggle and feel for their sort of ideas and strife and you know, that's to me that's kind of like twofold. One, it's good writing. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I think is an easy compliment for this book to to start off with. And two, I think is just sort of the I think one of the biggest latching on points of this book for me, because I'm I'm very big on characters. Yeah. And yep. I, you know, I love I love having um someone to sort of latch onto. And I felt like that with this book, but you know, it's it is weird, you know, in a sense kind of uh, we've had a few books where we've had, I guess, flawed protagonists or, yep, or yep. protagonists that do bad things, and uh, you know we're still left to kind of be not on their side, but at least sympathetic towards their ideas and thoughts. And I, don't know, I just wanted to get how you kind of felt about this one because that one that stood out to me immediately. Just closing the book and going like, yeah, I mean, I cared about this person, but God, they were not a good person. Yeah, I I think it's it's a good writer can can humanize a character. Um, right. And make you, make you feel for that person. Yeah. Um, and I think a great writer can, can dehumanize a person the way that, that he's done with, you know, some of the actions that, you know, have, have gone on in this book Mm -hmm. and still make them a character that you are invested in. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think, I think the character, just the, the complexity was, was really interesting. I think to, to kind of add to that, if if you take in then the narrative style um, of of the book and its relation to the character, so the the whole first part of the book is his confession to it's evident very early on some communist uh, you know entity right yeah so at points in the book I, I kind of kept forgetting about it and then I'd come back to it you know when he would you know, mention usually at the change of a chapter, yeah. uh, when he would address, uh, the, the commandant or the commissar. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, then it kind of got me thinking that 
I really don't understand this character at all, and we probably shouldn't take anything that is being said as um, as honest, right? Um, even though it is presented in such a manner that it is, it, it almost seems like flawed honesty, right? Like, yeah. like it's 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 incredible. But then you have to remember that you know at some point he mentions that he's gone through multiple revisions of of his confession that we've spent most of the book reading. Um, you know, he's well aware of, of his audience at that point and his objective in communicating things. So, um, I found myself really spending most of the, the time after I finished the book thinking about what, what of this should I take away as, you know, obviously fictional character, but what actually happened in this versus, you know, what is he not telling us? Right. Um, is it plausible that uh, he completely flipped sides and the only reason that he's giving us this confession in such a way is so that he can save his own skin? I mean, you could make an argument that he's just trying to, you know, insert himself or reinsert himself as a reliable mole yeah. in, you know, the American military infrastructure uh, so that he's not tortured and murdered in this in this prison right sure and so good enough reason to say whatever you want to say exactly and so you know if if you think about all of his his actions throughout um really the only things that point back to the fact that he is a mole are really the correspondence that he's sending to his parisian aunt right yeah um and you get a few things you know uh that that he's doing uh before they leave Saigon. Yeah. Um that points to that direction, but it seems sort of like once that he leaves, you could make the argument that he's americanized, right? He's doing yeah. he's doing everything the general says. Uh you know, he comes back when man tells him not to. Um I mean, he he doesn't do anything that he should, right? He admits to to Sonny at one point, you know, before he murders him, uh that he's a communist, right? Yeah. And uh, and for a minute there, I thought maybe he's not going to murder him. Um, did did you did you think like I had an oh shit moment at that point? He's like, oh, he just admitted to being a communist, and maybe like they have a moment and he doesn't do this, and yeah. it all just maybe they kind of like a wink and a nod, yeah, and this and is how he ends up in a communist jail. They understand. Uh, no, I figured that he was going to kill him because um, I figured that he was at least. Um, I mean, he was playing the part very well. That That's the thing, too, is, is like the things that he was doing uh, to sort of like assist with what the general wanted. He played the part of being sort of sympathetic and in line with the general very well. And at the yeah. same time, you could see the flip side of that, of him using that to kind of to to be manipulative in that way and how he could still very much sort of hold his own his own beliefs prior to that. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, there is that whole aspect of it too. It's the, the situation and the circumstances of which we're getting this kind of testimony under that, yeah, we get a lot of unreliable narrator in there and it makes you go back and question the, you know, the reality of some of this stuff. And, uh, that in and of itself is kind of, it's, it's a nice little, a nice little head scratcher for, for the literary reader to think about afterwards. Me, I was more so just kind of on the nose with, yeah, um, with the things that he was saying, but no, I could certainly see it from that aspect as well. So one thing, well, there, there are a few things that, that tripped me up about this book. Um, so my, my first, I guess, gripe, um, is the, the density of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, this book was what, 300 something pages in, in, uh, um, in our version and there are no breaks for dialogue because he condenses all of the punctuation and all of the traditional, uh, you know, dialogue set up into just, you know, normal conversation, which in and of itself, I really like that technique. I found it to be, um, very immersive no. in, in reading. I was, I didn't feel so broken up, you know, trying to like, you know, listen to characters and, and all of that kind of stuff. I really appreciated that style. But at the same time, when I was done, if he had gone through the traditional method of, of using dialogue, mm-hmm. this would have been a 600-page book, if yeah. not more. I mean, so I I read this book really slowly in part because of, of some of those, those choices. And then 
there were a few places that it that really bogged down for me. Mm-hmm. I, I I think that that Win is a vastly talented writer. I think this is this is one of the books that we've read that I'm like, this guy has done some really amazing things, um, you know, just stylistically um, that we really haven't seen too much of. But he was also prone in several places to overwriting things. And there were big chunks of paragraphs where I'm just like, will you please stop? Like, we we get it. Like, enough enough is enough. Um, Did you ever get like tripped up on on any of the the stylistic choices that that he made? Uh, Not exactly. I do understand kind of like, uh, your feeling of getting bogged down in some places, but I don't think it was ever, you know, I feel like you have a more, a more stylistic mind towards, towards writing than I do. And so I feel like you have a tendency to, to see those things and go, okay, well not necessarily what would I do, but as somebody who writes or someone who's kind of been in that, that sphere, like what, how would I want to see this conveyed? And, and uh, yeah, I can understand that, but, I agree. It does. It does bog down a little bit um, once we get kind of past that first half of the book and we start getting closer and closer towards towards him kind of. Well, we get closer and closer towards our, you know, our point of, okay. well, how is he in this situation that he's in right now? Like we're getting all this backstory. We're getting everything leading up to it. We're getting all this confession and we're finally kind of getting close to this point of uh, of sort of like coming back in the present and this not being sort of all like a recollection. And yeah, I feel like towards that, it, it, it bogged down a little bit before kind of picking up there again at the end. But I mean, I never really liked, I, I never really struggled. It did seem, it did seem pretty dense. I will say yeah. that like, like, like you said, the, the, the way it's structured is kind of how it has to be structured in a very condensed dialogue kind of way. And I think it makes sense with the way that, the way that we're kind of granted this narration. It's like, okay, this is, we're told this story by him. You know, we're not getting this third person narrator. We're not going to have these vast sprawling, uh, you know, dialogue passages from people. We're going to get very sparse. Like, what did this guy say to me summed up? How did I feel about it? What did I say? And, you know, the best example of that, I think, is when he first meets with the auteur and, you know, they're talking about, you know, the... I guess sort of the the changes he made in the margins about yeah. the 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 Hamlet and everything like that and you know I I feel like it works really well for the way that this book is sort of laid out for us but had yeah had he gone a more traditional way with um a little bit more third person and and we kind of get these longer and more you know accurate portions of dialogue between characters yeah this could have been this could have easily been 500 plus pages and yeah you know but at the same time it it did kind of you put it down and it kind of feels like you you went through about 500 or so pages yeah. just just trying to get through it there but i don't know it, it it was never there was never a point where i like felt um exhausted by it or felt you know compelled to put it down I, I kind of had a natural rhythm with reading this book that was that was kind of nice like i i kind of had sort of my ebb and flow yeah i read a couple chapters then i'd you know, the next night I'd read a chapter or two and then I'd read like six chapters. And then, yeah, it was it was pretty it was pretty standard for me. I had I had this thing where if I got out of my rhythm of reading, you know, several chapters in a single sitting, I had a really hard time, like getting myself back into it. Yeah, um, because I, I think that this book works in in that it's just sort of a constant flow of information. Sure. And I think when you get out of that flow and you get to, you know, especially chapter breaks where you're in the middle of something, which happened a few times, um, but mostly he tried to like pull you back out into the letter writing thing and then get back into whatever it was. But um, I found it really hard to get like back in my groove when, when I paused. But my, my biggest thing about this book, and I I really want to ask you about this is that, when we get the the confession done to the commandant and in real time, the narrator, well, I shouldn't say in real time because all of this is really a retrospective. But yeah. when when we get done with the main chunk of the book where he's where he's told everything that's happened up to when he's in the reeducation camp. Yeah. And then we sort of get the, you know, quote unquote, present, you know, forward. Um, I really struggled with what to do make of that whole situation and I don't mean like it wasn't interesting I thought it was a little bit like convenient that man turned out to be the commissar sure um but I I I, the rest of the book I I I got a very clear message from uh but then 
at that point, I, I just really didn't know what to do with that whole situation. What what were they trying to to really achieve through his his reeducation part, his revelation? Other than he didn't intervene with with the uh, the woman who was being raped, um, seemed to me to be a bit ridiculous of yeah. like a of of a revelation because he had all these opportunities to you know do other things right that that he chose not to do right he could have botched the evacuation in Saigon and uh, and gotten a general captured or killed right. Um, there, there are all these other things that that happened. Why that point, um, you know, was was that the point of of contention for for man with yeah. this with this reeducation, and um, you know, what did he really? He didn't strike me as somebody who man that is who is really even that convicted at that point. I mean, he is severely burned and and clearly seems to be disenfranchised with the movement and yeah. the post-war, you know, setting. So I, I just, I really struggled with that part of this book in, in figuring out what to do with it. Like, did, did you have any, I, I found it interesting, but did you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, it's, this was one of those where, yeah, you kind of reach the climax. It feels a bit too early. And then we're kind of just left with this sort of, okay, well now what? Yeah. Because, you know, once you make that decision, I guess, as an author telling the story that, okay, we're not going, he's not going to be killed. Because the whole thing, you know, as we lead up in this book, you assume that it's okay, he's he's basically saying all of this, and then the something will happen, the communists will probably execute him. Right, And it's right. just, you know, that's kind of the, the full circle sort of uh, melancholic ending that I guess I expected throughout this book. And sure, then, sure. Not that, you know, there's anything bad with kind of subverting that, but... Yeah, the way it happens is we kind of get this climax, and then it's just sort of okay. Like, the, no, you know, you need to. Here's the here's the actual revelation that we're looking for. This one incident that's you know it's kind of mentioned earlier in the book, but it's it's never really like it was never really given any sort of weight. Like it like it sort of weighed on him for not doing this, or that you know in in, in any way sort of connected to man really right right and then yeah we get to the end of the book and it's like this is the linchpin this little sort of this little incident with the 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 former spy and and yeah and then just kind of the way that it it sort of peters off at the end and he's let go and it's kind of now he's left to left to to figure out even more just with his own identity and with sort of his his culture and kind of vietnam and and his place in the world and it does feel a little bit not unsatisfying because I think on the whole the book was still enjoyable enough yeah, of a oh, read. Yeah. Um, but much like uh, I guess a book similar for us would have been a Sense of an Ending, where we get that climax kind of early on, yeah, and then it just sort of like fades out with a whimper. Yep, yep. it doesn't really, yeah, it doesn't really carry the same kind of. I don't know. It doesn't kind of really carry the same kind of effectiveness of storytelling and that sort of like grounding in, in what's going on because it does feel a little bit, um, not realistic, not unrealistic, but yeah, it definitely seems a little bit more far-fetched those circumstances there or the coincident or the, yeah, the circumstances we get at the end, we kind of get this interjection of, all right, well, a, 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 a teaspoon, a dose of suspension of disbelief to kind of allow this sort of this sort of narrative to wrap up and yeah and it does feel a little bit flat you know th- so one other thing that i really wanted to talk about and this this will be my last thing okay is is the the trio of man the narrator and bond yeah um the triumvirate i know you were thank having you. you were having issues with that with yeah, that word just, it's a word that i that i can't say the triumvirate so um the blood brothers and maybe maybe this is you know sometimes you read you read things and you just like there's a piece of information that just completely uh escapes you but yeah. all three of them are best friends right yeah since since early childhood so does does bond think what does bond think that man is up to he doesn't seem to ever like address him in his like thoughts or, or actions man is clearly very well aware of what bond's up to yeah um and 
has some sense of uh, responsibility given, you know, his release at, at the end, right? Um, but I just thought, you know, obviously it's, it's, a, it's an interesting character study because you have the narrator who is pulled in so many directions. He's got friends on literally either side. Yeah. Um, Bond never quite makes the the jump toward the middle where, you know, he's somewhat sympathetic, uh, seemingly man, man does. Um, and, uh, your narrator's kind of always stuck there in, in the center. But, um, I just thought it was, it was the, the, the fact that there, the dichotomy between man and bond was never really addressed in the context of bonds character. Um, did you did you yeah, ever think I mean, about that or we did, go, did I miss and it's a legitimate question. Did I miss something I don't very think so. important? No, because at the beginning of the book, you know, when we're talking about the evacuation, like Bond's not going unless he gets assurances that that man is going to be leaving as well. And then we kind of just like never yeah. we never come back to that again. It's kind of just like, oh, well, he's now kind of in this refugee situation. He's with our narrator and he's obviously, you know, burdened by the loss of his wife and kid, but you know, he never really, we never come back to that. We never, no. we never really get that at all from his side. And it, yeah, it is very one-sided. Like man is, is aware through the narrator of what's going on with Bond and, you know, um, our narrator, you know, the reason why he goes back partially is to, is to protect Bond. Right. Um, right. But yeah, we never get, we never really get to see, or we never really get a whole lot of Bond's motivations. And I know that it's, the book is, it's a first person, you know, we're not going right. to get a third person sort of like breakdown of his thought process and all this, but he does seem very from kind of being like built up when we when we learn early on of these three and and sort of their connection and you know the scars on their hand and their yep. their sort of yep. like uh even sort of man and our narrator like protecting bond in a sense of like well he's kind of of a different ideology we feel like he's been influenced too much by them but right he's still our friend he's still like a part of this and so we will do our part to to protect him and to to make sure that he is that he is safe and and at least with this and then bond's just kind of there he, yeah, and I, he's I just, just kind of you know he's like yeah we'll we'll kill the we'll kill this guy and uh, yeah all right cool and you know he just we don't get a whole lot of a whole lot of uh, rationalization from him or by him no and and like I could see if if Bond thought like did was Bond ever aware that man was a communist I mean it seemed like no to me no it doesn't it didn't seem like that at all it seemed like like Bond honestly was the one character of that sort of group of of characters that we get through the eyes of the narrator that was just never really fleshed out. Yeah. Just never really all that fleshed out. Because, so th- this is the last thing I'll say about this. So if, um, if Bond knew that, uh, or thought that man was dead, you know, either, you know, through the fall, which would be a completely reasonable assumption, right? Yeah. The character never addresses that, right? Yeah. The other thing that I think is really interesting is that despite the fact that the narrator isn't aware that uh, the commissar is is man, he is aware that Bond is still in prison with him and doesn't really ever make an attempt in his confession to make Bond um, uh, safe through sure. you know his telling of of events. Right? He's he's very honest about uh, about what. Bond believes and and what he's done yeah. and does nothing in this very unique situation to try to save him up to and including the fact that you know maybe including that uh you know the the confidential informant is you know best friends with this guy and um although I guess maybe that would uh that would put man at risk so maybe it's not worth mentioning but yeah. um I mean there there could have been more done in the confession space to make to save bond i guess is yeah. is is my point um either through his care that that man was was dead um and the narrator was distraught that you know he couldn't tell him that man was alive and well and also a communist but um yeah just I, bond was was sort of a weird character and i even for a while kind of got on this thought pattern of w- whether those two characters were even real yeah. Um, whether maybe they were just some figment of his imagination, a representation of his, his own duality. Um, you know, I, that's an interesting take. I would have to, I'd have to go read it again to see like how much interaction there is kind of between actual real characters yeah. to try to flesh that out. But I had that thought as well. Mm-hmm. So, 
All right. Should we rate this book? Let's get into it. Let's rate it. It's your book. You go first. Man, I'm so I, I I'm I struggle with this book a lot. It was it was a difficult read. Um, it was enjoyable, but literary in the sense that you you do have to be engaged heavily with it. Mm-hmm. I think to get a lot out of it. Um, totally understand why it won a Pulitzer. Um, I think he is a fantastic writer. I think the the overarching objective um of him trying to tell a story um a familiar story ish from a perspective that isn't uh common um i think is is incredible he he is a master at, at executing on that yeah that being said I think just the the difficulty of this book and like my own personal enjoyability, I think right now I'm going to put this on the middle shelf. Okay. I think it's something that I, I feel like I could go back and read and probably, uh, you know, bump up. Um, but I really struggled with where to where to put this one. So I'm going to leave it on the middle shelf. OK, um, I'm definitely keeping it. I as well kind of struggled between top and middle shelf with this book. Uh, it had a lot of elements that I like really enjoyed that kind of kept me engaged in it. Um, but the few things I, I don't know if it's a universal recommendation for me. And as far as rereadability goes, it's kind of like right on that cusp of, of going back to kind of get another, another analysis. I feel like I got, I got a lot out of it already that I'm not necessarily so eager to go back and reread it. And so for those reasons, I'm going to put it on the middle shelf as well. Okay. Um, but, you know, very high up on the middle shelf. Like I said, it's 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 kind of in between those two for me. So overall, very real, real, well-written book. Um, I would definitely be interested in reading something else by Wynn. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought it was good. I mean, middle shelf is middle shelf is great. Yeah. Just, just, just a hair under you know, for my own personal preference for what I'd put on top shelf. Same. And what's, what's weird is like, if somebody asked me, have I read any good books lately? Like this would be the first one to come to mind. Yeah. And you know, I would tell them it's a great book, but it's a, it's, it's a tough read. It's 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 a commitment. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, uh, my wife read, read this book before, before I did. And, uh, well, part of her problem is she reads in bed and falls asleep, so she ends up having to reread a lot of stuff. But, yeah. Um, it took her a year to finish this book, yeah. um, which is, for her, an astoundingly long time, and I found my commitment to be equal, so not in overall time, but as far as energy yeah, compared to most books. All right. Fair enough. We got something easier coming up next? We do have something. Well, I don't know if easier, but definitely a little bit smaller. Um, it's been on my list, my kind of like short, long list for a while. Okay. Uh, of just, you know, I think whenever we first started the podcast, like I was really honing in on kind of like uh, canon or, you know, literature yeah. that yeah. that's a little bit more dated, that's a little bit more uh, removed from, more analyzed, more kind of like elevated in a sense of oh here's you know lists that you should read for essential fiction readers and, yep, and yep. whatnot and one that i've had for a while that i keep coming back to is the stranger by albert camus okay and uh yeah i don't know a whole lot about this so i'll read the little quick uh i'll read the little quick jacket yeah, blurb. let's hear it so in a short novel about an ordinary little man living quietly in algiers life begins to stalk him quietly and slowly but inexorably the pace quickens until the little man commits a pointless murder and reaches its climax after his trial the stranger presents an indelible picture of a human being helpless in life's grip. And so it seems interesting enough to me. I see it kind of on a lot of lists of just sort of uh, early 20th century fiction to, okay. to read and kind of digest. And yeah, so if, if it's, it's a nice little read. Under 200 pages should be fun and we can get back after it. So up Solid. next, our next episode is going to be Stranger by Albert Camus. Excellent. And that'll be episode 39. And then episode 40, Bro. I'll go ahead and make, make my pick. So I went to dinner with a coworker who, I live in Dallas. He drove all the way up from Houston just for dinner and then drove back the same night. So okay. that's like eight hours worth of driving. That is that's, that is a commitment. At, at minimum, eight hours, depending on where you live. Where'd y'all go to dinner? Uh, we went to uh, Yard House out okay. near the, uh, the Toyota Music Factory. Was the food good? Uh, the food was good, yeah. Eight-hour drive good? Uh, no, no. 
Not no. not. What uh, about Food Plus Company? Maybe like six hour drive worthy. Uh, yeah, I mean, we talked about books for a long ass time, and uh, so he 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 was generous. Yeah, he so spotted I made, you a couple actually. Made, uh, I made a extra hours. Yeah, yeah, I made a friend. He made a friend. Uh, so maybe it was worth it. But uh, in our conversation, um, we were just kind of spitting back and forth about books that, that we really liked, and uh, one that he recommended highly um, was a book by Neville Shute. Uh, called On the Beach, and I've never heard of Shoot. Uh, I've never heard of this book, but I picked it up because we had such a good conversation about books yeah. uh, that I'm just gonna I'm gonna trust him. Uh, so I'm gonna read the back of this one uh, so you guys can get a flavor for it. But it says, after a nuclear uh, World War III has destroyed most of the globe, the few remaining survivors in southern Australia wait for the re- radioactive cloud that is heading their way and bringing certain death to everyone in its path. Among them is an American submarine captain struggling to resist the knowledge that his wife and children in the United States must be dead. Then a faint Morse code signal is picked up, transmitting from somewhere near Seattle, and Commander Towers must lead his submarine crew on a bleak tour of the ruined world in a desperate search for signs of life. Yeah, who doesn't love disaster books? Yeah. World War Three, nuclear, you know... I don't know. We have an obsession with like, I guess it's the the times that we live in where it's just, you know, you're you're kind of led to believe that everything is sort of balancing on the precipice of whatever next yeah. major crisis exists that for some reason we have a morbid fascination with stuff like that. But, you know, it sounds awesome. My man. Yeah. So uh, we'll post dates on Twitter um, because this episode's coming out a wee bit later than normal. Yeah. Um, we're going to try to get back on schedule um, so we'll post the dates on Twitter so everybody knows exactly what we're doing. If you don't follow us on Twitter, we are at Better Bookshelf. Um, you can find all of our podcasts on uh, betterthebookshelf.com or wherever you get podcasts. Obviously, you're getting one now. Yeah, so. basically everywhere. Yeah. Um, and uh, if you want to shoot us an email, I guess, uh, you can hit us up at betterthebookshelf at gmail.com because why not? The next episode will be The Stranger by Albert Camus. And after that, we will do On the Beach by Neville Shute. Thank you for listening, and until next time. 